facts matter, as do their honest expression. And this is This Week in Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. And what is this about, Paul? It's about a reporter who I think is somewhat symbolic of reporters all over the country. In fact, in the piece, we don't name the reporter. Uh, and, I, and I think in the video that's linked to it, this is a, uh, uh, a press, I don't know about a press conference, but a press availability. It's the uh, uh, U.S. attorney, Bill Williams, uh, in Oregon, and he's at the Portland Federal Courthouse, and he's outside, and he's talking to some reporters, and they're asking him questions. And he, in the course of discussing it, uh, it's clear that one of the reporters, he's, he's pointing out that this is violence and that this is destruction and that this is not lawful and that that's a problem. And one of the reporters keeps, you know, sort of referring to it as, uh, what was it? Late night activity. That was one of the, one of the ways late night, late night activity, you know, uh, some people watch, uh, you know, watch some of the shows on TV, some of the late night shows uh, in Portland. Uh, some people smash things and uh, so on. Uh, she also referred to it as late night demonstrations. Now, um, demonstrations, there's nothing wrong with a demonstration. There's nothing wrong with a protest. In fact, um, I've spent a good bit of my life urging people to spend more time at protests and demonstrations because there's a lot of things that we need to fix and make better. That is fundamentally different than destroying things, uh, setting fires, which are sort of dangerous, beating up people. There have been people in these different melees who have been injured or killed. Um, and, and so this is, this is serious stuff. And for a reporter not to be able to somehow mouth the words is problematic. And yet, here's the rest of the story. He calls the reporter out on that and says, come on, this is, uh, you know, this is mindless violence. And, and he says, and anyone, this direct quote, who defends the violence is enabling this to continue. And the response is, from the reporter, the response is, I'm not a police officer. I don't get to distinguish that, whether it's violent or not violent. And of course, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous because this is just a simple fact. <laughs> Either violence happened or it didn't happen. You don't have to have a policeman there to tell you. It's like someone reads a sentence in a book and says, oh, I don't know whether it was really a sentence or not because I don't have a, a Ph.D. in English next to me to tell me it is. I mean, come on. And anyone can tell whether there's violence or not. And if the reporter can't tell that, I think they need to, at the very least, move the reporter to a different beat. But of course, somehow, I think, if the politics of this realigned itself, that this reporter likely, and I'm surmising I could be wrong, but I'm just surmising that this is an intelligent person because it's a job that requires being able to communicate and understand things. 
And that the problem here is this reporter's political narrative going in, I believe it was a her, uh, her head. And, and the, because somehow I think if this was a right-wing group or issue in her mind, um, that all of a sudden this would be clear violence and it would re- be reported that way. So maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I'm using my crystal ball, but I have a feeling it's actually spot on that this is not a matter of inability to distinguish fantasy from reality. This is a matter of political bias, just headlong jumping out at you in the news. And yet so many people can't ever see it. Um, but I'm pretty convinced that's what it is. So we're talking about the piece Violence Against Objective Reporting. Excuse me. Violence Against... I can't say it. I'm bidening out. Yeah. Uh, violence Against Objective Reporting uh, from Wednesday. Maybe you ought to run as an independent. Give people... Well, I can certainly hold my own against Biden. I'm not sure I could do very well against Trump. <laughs> I don't know. It, we, we need to have you, like, not sleep, get really ornery, and then, then maybe you could, you could uh, compete. You know, interestingly enough, we got a, got a comment on this piece from John Brennan, uh, who who often comments and and says very smart things. Um, but he says this is what passes for woke journalism. I wonder what the report would be if it was the reporter's car, home, person, or family damaged by the activists. And uh, you know, that's uh, here. I think. It is, of course, you know, it's, it's not her ox being gored, so to speak. And that would change someone's view. But, um, and I hate to disagree with uh, John Brennan because he's just about always right sometimes when I'm not. Uh, but I think here it is, it is the politics. We are getting our news with so much politics that it's hard to find the news. And so that's, that's, I think, what the problem is here, plain and simple. You know, uh, we should move ahead to hit play for transparency. And um, it's interesting because I have, I have for years, months, years, um, I guess not more than years, not decades, but really since what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, which was kind of the first of this, you know, recent time spat of, of uh, police killing people, except that, of course, Ferguson, you always hear about uh, police killed an unarmed black man. But the investigations, we should, in full disclosure, the investigations found that Michael Brown was likely the aggressor in those um in, in that altercation, and I say those, in both of the uh, uh, reviews, one of which was by uh, Eric Holder's Justice Department when Obama was in. And, and uh, certainly, um, you know, the facts seem to, seem to bear that out. Most of these cases that I can think of, there's just, there's not any question uh, about it. And I think in George Floyd's case, um, you know, you see the eight minutes of someone with their, their knee on the neck. Uh, and, and so you, you know, you kind of say, look, this is pretty clear. 
at the same time, it's really important to have all the facts um, and to try to understand what happened before, what's going to happen, you know, what happened afterwards, get some continuum to kind of think what were people thinking? Uh, you know, if you know, uh, you know, did the police know that this person had a prior record, uh, that there was violence involved in that prior record? Were there different factors like that? Um, and how was George Floyd acting before they had him on the ground and so on? How did he get to the ground? Anyway, the Daily Mail in Britain uh, somehow got copies. And it's pretty obvious from the film how they got copies. Someone went into the courthouse where the uh, judge in this case had allowed news media to come in and view the tapes. They were not allowed to record them. Well, someone clearly came in and had some sort of recording device and recorded. So that's how the Daily Mail got them. I'm glad that I got to see them. And I think it's important. Uh, and, and, and throughout all of these situations, one of the things that, that I've been pushing, and, and a lot of people have been pushing, is police cameras. We, uh, Liberty Initiative Fund, which is where I work uh, in, during the day um, and sometimes at night, uh, it, you know, we were involved in doing uh, with uh, Nick Kassoff and, and a number of people in Ferguson uh, in helping them do a police camera initiative. And uh, it was passed in uh, 2014, 20, I think it was 2014, maybe it was 2015. Uh, but, but several years after that and the importance of that when we passed that initiative he, the police in Ferguson were already wearing police cameras so you might say Paul why did you go to the trouble of passing a law to make them wear police cameras if they're already doing that well here's why because during this time that they were wearing them there were no requirements that they wear them. And there was an incident in which they, there was someone hurt and, oh, well, we didn't turn it on. Well, there needs to be rules that they turn it on and there needs to be repercussions, including at a certain point, you're fired if you don't turn it on. And, and, there, and it's the other thing is there was another time where they had footage, but they fought and would not release the footage. It doesn't do any good to take pictures if no one gets to see them. And the whole point there, because one of the things that I wrote about uh, at Town Hall and at thisiscommonsense.org uh, at the time, uh, you know, when Ferguson happened, was how quickly people rushed to take sides that it was the police. No, it was Michael Brown is a terrible guy. And, and they had no real information, no real information. There wasn't a body camera. There, weren't, there was no uh, visual audio of the altercation. You didn't know. And yet the whole country rushed to judgment, it seemed like, um, on one side or the other. And that's just stupid. Um, it's, it, uh, oftentimes it's because of partisan reasons. It doesn't really matter what the reason is to just rush to decide I'm going to be on this side or that side without any clue as to what any of the facts are is stupid. 
And we're encouraged to do it on social media and by the mainstream media and by about every media I can think of, but it's still very counterproductive and ignorant to do it. And so we shouldn't do that. And in this case, there's stuff we still don't know. And we, we need to see everything we can. And I'm glad that we were able to see this footage. We need to, around the country, police cameras have spread uh, to jurisdiction after jurisdiction. Virtually everywhere they have them now. But hardly anywhere do they have the right rules that would require them to um, wear it, to keep it on, and that would have rules for people's privacy uh, and also rules for when an incident happens, we release the video. The public has a right to see this. There are ways to do these rules and the courts can decide when somebody's privacy runs into uh, the public's right to know, but the public has a basic right to know. And having police cameras everywhere, cop cams, you know, lapel cameras, where we're getting all this footage, well, we're not getting it unless the police are required to release it. That's when we get it, when it's on TV, when anyone, not just a news organization, can go see it. Um, and so we need that. And we need it both, I think, because we, we have cases that are tough to decide and we need all the evidence we can get. We also need it because the public needs to not feel like we're going to get stiff-armed and kept out and that nothing's going to change. As long as the public, which on criminal justice reform issues, is off the charts in favor of just about every sensible reform imaginable. And yet there's been so little change. And so it's, you know, we need to put more and more controls in the hands of the public. We may need, um, you know, people at different places talk about citizen, uh, you know, committees who would look over uh, policemen's misconduct charges. There's all kinds of things to do. And I'm sure that some of these won't work as well as others. We need to implement them. And we've written in, in past weeks about the fact that with this kind of public support for criminal justice reform, how pitiful it is that so few things have been passed and, and that just now major cities uh, finally passing something on chokeholds and stuff that for a decade people have, you know, most of the police forces around the country have realized these are not good to do. These are deadly. So, um, and, and I made this point, I had somebody who, who commented, you know, why should anybody believe Tucker Carlson? And, uh, and I'll take just a second to uh, address this, which is involved in, in media, which the first script we talked about, talked about the media, but also in all this criminal justice reform and in, and in issues generally. And basically said, well, why should I listen to Tucker Carlson? And I said, because Tucker, Tucker Carlson, whether you agree or disagree, might have something worth hearing. And in this, I, I also had somebody on, you know, uh, uh, social media today, or I was talking with and was, you know, basically saying, do you trust this media source? And I said, I don't trust any media. So I don't know any media source that I would say, you can just trust whatever they print. And so we have to 
that means that you have to be more guarded about everything you read and see and hear. But it also means you have to, I think, open yourself up to more things. You can't say, I don't like so-and-so. Or I don't agree with that station or that, you know, uh, cable news channel as much as this one. So I'm just going to listen to mine because yours, even though it might give the news you like better, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we don't have to be tortured all the time. Um, I'm a little bit masochistic when it comes to listening to people spout political ideas that drive me crazy, but, you know, keeps my heart beating. But, it, but we have to. I've said for years, people who complain they don't like Fox News, on the, uh, friends I have on the left, I say, unfortunately, because MSNBC and CNN and, frankly, all three you know, old networks and other media doesn't cover certain stories that don't sit well with liberal audiences and that the conservative audiences like better, well, you're not going to hear those stories. You're just not going to hear those stories unless you tune into Fox every once in a while. And and I think the same is true. If you just listen to Fox, you're, there are going to be some stories you don't you don't know about or you know about in a really peculiar way. So these this this whole world we're living in where you can't you know fully trust any media source, it does demand, I think, that we actually listen to more voices. Um, and that's not a bad thing on uh, on and especially when it comes, I think, to some of these cases, um, you know, Michael Brown, the first that folks heard about that, it's pretty hard to imagine that somehow he without a gun engaged the policeman. It just didn't, that didn't make any sense. And yet then as other facts came out, it made a little bit more sense. Now, in George Floyd's case, uh, Tucker Carlson certainly suggested, even though at the later in his show, he said clearly he didn't think that that what was seen on video exonerated the policeman. Um, but he clearly thought it put the policeman in a different light um, or the altercation in a different light. And I think that I think he's on to something there in the sense that George Floyd was clearly on something. George Floyd did not react like a normal person would react. Now, frankly, the police didn't react like normal police ought to react either. Um, the one policeman had a gun out very quickly, and that gun was pointed in the general direction of George Floyd. And so, you know, there's a lot to be asked about in these situations. And it just seems to me that our our position, all of us, wherever we are on the political spectrum or any anywhere else, the one thing we all agree about is give us all the information, put it out there, and then let us make up our own minds, let us discuss, let us be wrong about it even, maybe, and then figure out, oh no, maybe I see it a different way. We live in a society that people all across the spectrum complain about cancel culture and and how vicious things are, well, let's stop, let's stop playing that game. And let's start feeling free to say what we think about things and to demand that we see all the information. And that's, I think, um, uh, again and again, we are fighting over basic freedom of speech 
sometimes it's about government clamping down on freedom of speech. Sometimes it's not government, although government tends to be involved, like we've talked about with social media companies like Twitter and, and Facebook and some of the laws that protect them uh, from antitrust and, and other, you know, they, they're situated in such a way that they, they are in part creatures of the Congress. And, um, and so we also have to look, though, as individuals. I'm not looking for the, the government to dictate what companies do. Companies can do what they want to do within, you know, as long as it's legal. Um, but I think we also have to start saying we're not going to put up with companies who do not embrace a robust debate um, and freedom of speech in the robust American way, as we always say, that's America's gift to mankind. Don't screw it up. Uh, so I, I think uh, I, I think the it's funny how free speech weaves in through everything. And of course, when we get uh, down the later in this podcast. We'll talk about the latest events in Hong Kong. And, uh, and of course, that's all about free speech, that somehow this powerful totalitarian country can't survive if people in one little city are able to say what they think. One of the issues here is um, the things that we need versus what we're being given, that politicians or the courts or whatever heavily manage what we they think we, we need and we need something different and that was a theme also on friday if i may stretch this idea further and it's very strong on the friday piece because that's about that's about the coronavirus is it not it is it is um and and of course uh, enter stage left gretchen whitmer uh, Michigan's governor, who has has kind of you know just become the arch enemy of any sort of freedom when there's a virus in in our midst, which of course is always. Um, but she not only has been draconian in lots of different ways with her you know crackdowns and demands that people mitigate uh, the spread of the disease by going out on, a, on the lake in a canoe, but not in a party barge, uh, stuff like that. Um, but she's got a new one. And the new one is that the health crisis that we have to recognize is racism. And what is behind that? Well, what's behind that is statistics that show very clearly that uh, Black Americans are a very disproportionate percentage of the deaths in, in the United States. We're, what, over 150,000, and, and uh, they have been a much higher percentage than their population. Uh, other minorities have been higher, higher uh, uh, percentage of Hispanics, uh, Asians in, in the numbers than, than Caucasians. And... You know, as we as we point out, there's there's a, a video that USA Today put together that kind of talks about some of these discrepancies. Um, and what's what's not said is what the whole point of the script was. And 
and also why it, it's not said. One of what at least appears, I don't want to, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not giving any medical advice, um, and, and I mean that. I'm not just saying that to avoid some FDA lawsuit. I'm not a doctor, and I'm not giving you medical advice. Um, but it seems pretty clear in what evidence is out there that one of the key factors, especially in people who are getting severe COVID that kills you, is a deficiency of vitamin D. And of course, that might be, um, you might think, oh, yeah, what's that? That seems a little odd. Is this some crazy new, you know, some lunatic doctor came up with this and, and got a camera and went on YouTube and no, actually, what I found fascinating is that uh, 20%, a little over 20% of what are considered white Americans have a vitamin D deficiency. So this is something that is a pretty serious problem. I mean, a fifth of us plus uh, who are happen to be white, uh, see, see if this is the video you can tell. Uh, but, but, um, so that's a pretty serious thing, but of course, black Americans, it's 73% have a deficiency and 42% of Hispanics have a vitamin D deficiency. And it turns out, and I didn't realize, I mean, I realize you get, you know, vitamin D oftentimes from, you know, I drink a lot of milk. Maybe that's uh, hopefully I'm, I'm, I'm in, not in the 20%, but, uh, but you also get it from the sun. And of course, especially because so many people during the lockdowns, it was like, you're supposed to stay in your house. No, you're not. <laughs> Nobody said you have to stay in your house. It was a wonderful time to go out and see nature and be in the sunshine as long as you're not in a crowded room with people. And so, uh, but anyway, all of that advice, if it kept people indoors and out of the sun, would decrease the level of vitamin D in, the, in their body. And it turns out that because, of course, people who are white, you know, they, people seem to think, scientists, you know, the expert scientists, they seem to think that it's because we live in the North where, you know, we, we, could, we could do whatever magic we could with melanin because we're not getting much sun. And, of course, people who were on the equator who are darker complected, maybe a part of that was like, hey, we're protecting ourselves from all the sun we're getting. We don't need any extra melanin. Melanin. And uh, anyway, the bottom line is, why is this never, you don't see this on TV. You don't hear people talk about it. Is it too simple? Is it that nobody would get rich by saying it? Is it that there's not any political acts that could be ground, ground uh, grinded? Sounds better grinded than ground. But anyway, I think ground's probably corrected. Anyway, it's all politics and BS. Why is this not being talked about, especially because it does seem to have uh, there's no proven scientific study that shows it. But there's an awful lot of repeated linkage where people who are dying of COVID-19 are vitamin D deficient. So on Friday, as a service to my fellow man, um, I said that and I think it ought to be, uh, it ought to lead every newscast. We, we live in a time in which simple stuff that can help people doesn't get done because we're too busy, like kicking somebody in the knee. 
it's just it's insane. And um, and so there you have it. Uh, My advice is no matter who you are or what your skin complexion is, get some sunshine, get some extra. And um, and bless you. Hope hope that you uh, hope that you survive this disease. And I hope that we all survive the reaction of politicians to this disease. Now, I also take vitamin D supplements, and those are readily available, and they're not expensive. And with along with sun, that would be very useful for people, I think. Yes. I, you know, I have not, uh, I don't take vitamin D supplements, and I don't know how much vitamin D you actually get from drinking milk, and I've cut way down on my milk consumption. Um, but, boy, I cut down from, from drinking a lot of milk. So I always felt like I got enough vitamin D, but... I guess we wouldn't know unless it, it was tested. Well, if you're cutting down from milk, you might be also uh, mitigating or uh, preventing one of the problems associated with COVID-19, which is obesity. <laughs> that is another cofactor. I mean, it's not just vitamin D deficiency. People who are too large, and many of us are too large uh, for our alleged height, right? We're, we're a little bit too wide. Uh, that's also associated with uh, the disease. And so... One of the problems of the lockdowns has been that people have started binging on food and not doing anything. Right, right. And, and so there's, like, what they call it, the COVID bump or something? 15 pounds extra is what people are putting on? Uh, it should be going the other direction in America. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny because this has been a, a wonderful time for me, at least from a health um, standpoint and so on. I've gotten to play more tennis uh, with my 20 year old daughter. And, you know, once they're 20, you realize, uh, you know, your, your days of getting to do fun stuff are, are limited going forward. You know, they got to live their lives and it has been so wonderful. I think we played more tennis during this pandemic than probably in the previous 20 years of her life. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. So, you know, you, there, there's good in the bad always, or at least, uh, ways to, to try to find it. You know, what, oh. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, one of the things about this issue of, you know, vitamin D and obesity and just general health in defense against the virus, it's kind of an obvious point that we aren't talking about. It's one of my favorite pet peeves is that sometimes now it's the obvious that we need to stress, uh, excuse me, stress, because the obvious is the one thing people are overlooking sometimes. Yeah. And uh, and that's actually what we were talking about on Monday as well. Uh, your first piece of the week was called uh, An Obvious Opportunity. Oh, no, Corruption and Opportunity. And obvious was a theme of the, your conclusion, I should say. I was jumping ahead to your conclusion. Well, it's... Um, look, I... I um, on, on Monday, we talked about President Trump's tweet. And, of course, President Trump asked a question which is a kind of sneaky way to put it out there. And then the media wanted it to be, this is his tweet about, should we delay the or postpone the election? And, and I took it as President Trump is trolling the media. And of course, the media has been troll, trolling President Trump on this whole issue of, you know, the first time in 2016 before the election, uh, the poll showed Hillary Clinton ahead. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Uh, 
But it, it is true. The poll showed Hillary Clinton ahead. And of course, there were numerous questions to Donald Trump. Will you agree that the election was fair and not rigged if you lose? And of course, his response, which only seems logical, was, well, I'm not going to say before the election that, you know, I was treated fairly. Let's see what happens. And, and then, of course, after the election and up to this exact moment, uh, Hillary Clinton and other Democrats have refused to accept the election results without saying they were rigged and so on. So it's a, eh, just a little bit of a, of a funny, ironic situation. Um, but it, it seems here it's a little bit different because it's not just I won't accept the results. There's this whole I won't leave. Like, I'm going to barricade myself in the White House or see if I can convince the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff to have like a military coup or something. I don't think this is really very likely. And, and maybe, I'm, maybe I'm missing a few plays here or there, but I just, I'd be willing to bet a whole lot of money that if President Trump loses... He leaves and that he leaves at exactly the same day as the, the other president's coming in. There's no issues about it of any serious, you know, maybe a couple of keys get misplaced. I, I don't know, but I just it just seems so obvious. And yet it's been treated very seriously by the media that he might not step down. And of course, now we get a pandemic we get uh, a case where we had an Ohio governor, Governor DeWine, who basically a court said, no, that election needs to take place. And Governor DeWine said, no, we're, push we're postponing it. It's not taking place. Uh, and I think basically didn't get a whole lot of pushback, largely because I think the media was on his side for whatever it's worth. It still seems like this, you know, there should have been a little pushback as to why a governor doesn't have to follow a court order. Um, and, and I don't know all the details, so maybe there were some things in there that allowed some of that to happen. I, I, I don't claim to have any, any deep knowledge of that, but it just seems to me that, that the court said the election needs to go on, and the governor said it wasn't going to go on. Now, the president of the United States has absolutely no role in deciding when the election is, just absolutely zero role. It's set by Congress. It's set in law. Uh, there's just nothing he can do to postpone the election, nor do I think he should postpone the election. But I think what was really at work is him trying to make a point and to get into the discussion that mail-in ballots are a problem. And, and one of the things, and here I guess our theme this week is, you know, would the press bother to tell any facts about any of the stories that are out there? And here's what I mean. So many people don't really get the difference between mail-in voting and absentee mail-in voting or absentee voting. Both of them, you mail it in. Both of them, the government mails you a ballot you fill it out and you mail it back. So they're, they're very similar in that way. The difference is this. The difference is absentee ballots get sent to people who say, hey, would you send me an absentee ballot? 
they, my local here in Virginia, in Prince William County, Virginia, uh, I got in the mail the, just the other day uh, a application to fill out, to get a, a ballot mailed to me so that I could vote absentee because of the pandemic. Uh, I like to go on election day, so I never vote absentee. It's kind of fun, I think, on election day. You know, I'm, I don't have anything else to do except be nervous, so I'll go be nervous standing in line with everybody else. Um, but because of the pandemic, I figured it probably makes sense to do it this way. I got that in the mail. My daughter got that in the mail. My wife did not get in the, in the mail. Now, she had to take the step of going online and saying, hey, what's going on? Send me that. Uh, and why didn't they? She votes every time, just like I do. And, you know, we're, we're all voting just about every time, I think. Uh, so, you know, that didn't quite make sense. But I, I have no problem with them sending out something to me or to everyone saying, would you like to vote this way? And then the people who say, yes, I would, they get the ballot, they mail it back. And that it has to be mailed back without, you know, having, you know, uh, you know, somebody deliver it who's somebody else or it's not signed or, it's, you know, it does have to be filled out correctly, I think, to, to count within certain parameters. Um, because you do have to worry about ballots that are out there in the public that are being carried in the mail that maybe were, you know, stuffed in a mailbox that I know I go by my mailbox and sometimes I have not put it in the mailbox because there's so much mail coming out and decided to take the extra few minutes to park and walk into the post office and stick it in the mail slot there, things can happen. The difference is that with a mail-in election, all mail-in ballots, they are mailing ballots to every voter, every possible voter. And of course, we know in the, these elections, you you might get 60% of the vote. In a big election, you might get 70% of the registered voters to vote. I don't know if we've had one that's been that high, actually, but I'm uh, no expert in that either. Uh, but it's, it's that sort of number, which means, of course, that let's say it's 70. That's pretty good uh, turnout. That's 30% of the voters' ballots who are sitting, that are sitting out there in mailboxes or that maybe got pulled in and are sitting on the counter. They're not going to vote. But there's a ballot right there that's live that anybody could fill out. And it's not like you're given a DNA sample or something else in the thing, nor am I suggesting that by any means. But, it, you know, anybody could fill it out. And if they know your info or whatever, I don't, I don't know exactly what they'll ask. But there's the potential for fraud there. There's the potential for bad things to happen. And, of course... In, in the bill that the Democrats put in into in the U.S. Congress, the U.S. House, it allowed for what's called harvesting, where people can go pick up your ballot and take it to the post office or take it to the, the county you know, election bureau or what have you. And there's been some problems with that. There have been some people who have picked them up and maybe picked up some that weren't really real ballots or picked up somebody's ballots and then altered those ballots. So there's been some hanky-panky. And again, what we always hear on voter fraud is that it it's rarely ever happens. It, it's always a poo-poo, shut up, don't talk about it. 
Now, on the other hand, oftentimes people talk about voter fraud as if we just don't know whether ever any election was ever correctly decided or not. There have been elections where there's been some real problems with voter fraud. I remember an election years ago in Maryland where Ellen Sauerbrey lost in a very, very tight election. And there were some uh, precincts in Baltimore City that had more votes for her opponent, Paris Clendenning, I believe, um, than were registered to vote in that precinct. Well, you don't have to you don't have to know that either fraud or something really screwy happened if there are more votes than people who are eligible to vote. So and, and yet at the same time, she was kind of poo pooed as a sore loser. So there seems to be this shut up about any election problem. We're not going to talk about that. Um, as if somehow the legitimacy of the whole system is, is kind of resting on our, our willingness to shut up and close our eyes. Um, and that's not good. Uh, I think we ought to be looking at what is happening and 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 let's recognize there is the potential for fraud in these cases. Let's put some safeguards in. Um, and and let's also recognize that any safeguards we put in, if if you can show real harm in terms of people being dissuaded from voting or blocked from voting in any way, you can't put that in. And the courts should stop that, even if the partisan legislators want to do it. But there's no there's no support among the American people of any size anywhere that says that's okay. At the same time, I know that in Virginia we've had elections where I've got to show my ID, and I don't think that that has created a situation in which the elections in Virginia have been fraudulent and terrible, and and voter suppression has has taken place. I do think that if uh, you require voter ID, uh, ID to vote, you can't have a poll tax. And so you have to provide voter ID for free. Doesn't have to be a driver's license, but some sort of ID that would work for free. Um, but I think that's fine if you do that. And, and, and it's not my bugaboo. I don't, I don't necessarily know that voter ID is, is the greatest thing ever. Or, but but I, I just recognize the way voter fraud allegations or actual clear events. You know, there's the case here in New York where in the one election, literally 20% of the ballots didn't get counted. 20% of the people voted. The post office didn't get them where they needed to be. They didn't count. One out of five voters. No, no, we're just taking this with four out of five voters. That other fifth doesn't count. That's a real problem. And pretending it's not tells me it's a bigger problem than I even thought. Anytime you see a little problem that you're not allowed to talk about, that's really, please move along, let's not talk about that, it suggests to me that it's a bigger problem. And, and I have to do a shout out to Not So Free who commented on this, uh, that uh, Trump played them like a strad with that comment in terms of trolling the media and then added whether he intended to or not, which I thought was funny in the sense that 
I think sometimes he plays the media very well. And that like Not So Free, I know this woman who's just wonderful. Uh, <laughs> I kind of think sometimes he almost does it by accident too. So anyway. Well, when you're a virtuoso like he is, even your mistakes are great, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know there are so many people who are just, his head just exploded. You know, he, he is, and, and I don't know if you've ever read any of the older articles when he was younger and pretty clearly played his own PR man and would call up reporters pretending to be a PR flack for him and telling them wonderful things about him and so on. You know, he's, uh, when he, his, his level of narcissism fits right with everybody in Washington, I think. Um, but the truth is, he is a virtuoso in a sense, a sense, a savant maybe, or something with media in that, or maybe he just doesn't give a crap. Uh, something because he's able to say things that nobody else is willing to say. No one else would dare say. And he then is able to stand behind them in, in many ways. And, and I've seen different things that he did that sometimes very much upset me. And I've wondered why would somebody do something like that? And then I've seen later that it turned out that it was a fairly positive thing in polling, uh, somewhat surprising. For instance, his, his comment about uh, stopping uh, Muslim immigration uh, was a, at least a plurality winner if it didn't get an actual majority of the country. And I'm not just talking about majority of conservatives, talking about a majority of the country. And I had, of course, a huge, huge problem with that because you cannot, I mean, that violates the First Amendment and, and having a religious test uh, at any level is just just offensive. But, um, but again, he oftentimes is able to get into a fight with the media, regardless of whether I'm for him or against him on whatever particular issue it is. He gets into a fight with the media where they're pounding him. But then later I realize, wait a second, the Poland, he, as they're pounding him, he's winning. So it's it's it is really interesting what he has done from a from a completely pragmatic, uh, you know, it'd be interesting if anybody could do a dispassionate look at how Trump has done media from going down the, the escalator at Trump Tower to the end of whenever he leaves the White House. It would be a fascinating uh, thing to read. Uh, if if someone could do it dispassionately, that may be that may be a tall order. Let's end it on all together now. Whenever I think of that, uh, I, I wrote that title and and uh, we went back and forth on titles and then we ended up sticking with it. But I, I always think of that. I think of uh, the 1930s cartoon Gulliver's Travel uh, Travels and uh, and. It, there's a great song all together now in that uh, in that cartoon, which my oldest loved when she was a little kid and uh, and I loved when she was a little kid anyway. But this is not about Gulliver, uh, uh, specifically. Uh, it's about what's happening in Hong Kong, except 
it's not just happening in Hong Kong anymore. And I believe that we've mentioned this in a couple of different uh, uh, commentaries on, on China and Hong Kong and what's happening. Uh, but under this national security law, they've basically outlawed any type of free speech in a, of a political nature. Uh, they have arrested people for nothing other than being parts of protests that, and being pro-democracy uh, in the past, even though they have continually said this is not retroactive, they are applying this law retroactively. And it's obvious because just last week, they uh, filed arrest warrants in Hong Kong for six different uh, pro-democracy activists. And um, all six of these activists don't live in Hong Kong. Now, uh, a couple of them, uh, like Nathan Law, who was a Hong Kong legislator, has been a big pro-democracy guy, was very much involved in the 2014 uh, umbrella movement. Um, and, and so he's been involved in stuff there for a long time. But as soon as the national security law uh, took effect, um, was put into effect without anybody in Hong Kong saying boo, was put into effect by uh, the Be Beijing uh, uh, Chinazis. Anyway, uh, he left Hong Kong. So he hasn't been in Hong Kong to commit any, any crime. And then, of course, there was a, another uh, gentleman uh, who has been in Germany for, for years and said, I haven't, I haven't had any uh, public statements about China or Hong Kong. And so the only thing they could go after me for is, uh, is what I did in the past. And then there was also uh, Samuel Chu, uh, who heads up a group called the Hong Kong Democracy Council. But it's a group headquartered in Washington. He's been in, uh, he's an American citizen. He's been in Washington or, or in America uh, for more than two decades. So uh, he is certainly not someone that you would think the Chinazis, the communist, uh, Chinese Communist Party officials in Beijing or now in Hong Kong uh, have any jurisdiction on whatsoever. But that is the way that this law is written. Uh, and I make a little joke about the fact that they didn't name me. I mean, I've said plenty of nasty things about uh, the authorities in Hong Kong and the uh, butchers of Beijing. And so I felt kind of left out. Um, but I was trying to emphasize the fact that uh, not that I've like, you know, reached that status. I was, you know, I do have some sense of humor and maybe some sense of my own, you know, uh, stature, but or lack thereof. But the whole point was how silly it is that they could name anybody anywhere in the world. And that, that's exactly what they have done. And uh, and. I, I look at this and, and the first, um, we, we've written so much, considering that, that uh, you know, I, I write from the United States, I write for a audience of Americans, uh, about 99.9%. Um, we've talked a lot about Hong Kong and about China and about Taiwan and, and so on, because I think what's happening in China and what's happening in Hong Kong and could happen in Taiwan is hugely important for the world, for there, and for here. Uh, but the first uh, piece I wrote was called I Am Hong Kong. 
And I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, Samuel Chu uh, basically commented that, you know, here the CCP, the Chinazis uh, from Beijing have created a situation where we are all Hong Kongers now. And uh, I know that the, the protesters there have so often reached out to the world because, you know, they're smart people. They know they're up against the biggest 800-pound gorilla you could imagine. And they know that they have, you know, they have very little to work with. And I think that's one reason why I have such respect for them, because they're still fighting as best they can. But they do recognize that one of the things they have is the rest of the world. What we do, what we buy, what we say uh, matters, what we think, hearts and minds in any war. And I would argue, as I said to a friend this week, we're, we're at war with China. Um, and we would, and I'm talking about a non-shooting war, and let's keep it that way. But I do think that the best way to keep it a non-shooting war with China is to be at war with them. From a personal standpoint, I feel like I'm at war with China. I want what they are doing in China and what they are pushing on the rest of the world, including threatening to invade places and force it on them. Is it's totalitarianism. It's everything that I have fought my whole life. It is the antithesis of freedom and democracy and everything I love. Uh, and and so we are all Hong Kongers, and what's happening there can happen other places. It's up to us to recognize it, to speak about it. I don't have all the answers. I'm not looking to, you know, send a quick memo to my congressman or, or President Trump to say, hey, solve all this uh, unilaterally at the snap of your fingers. But I do believe you can see in just the last year or so, and I think largely brought on uh, by what happened in Hong Kong and more importantly in Taiwan in 2014, but I don't have time to go into all that. We, we will at some point, um, maybe. But especially what happened with the protests that started last June, not this June, but June of 2019, that woke up, I think, people all over the world. You see Japan urging companies to move out of China. Uh, you see the United States doing things to try to change the way business is done and to take away some of the actual advantages uh, that they've given Chinese companies and they've, and the, you know, incentives to do business in China instead of the U S or somewhere else. Uh, we see it in being much more serious about Huawei and, and, uh, and just, you know, whether China is going to do all the infrastructure and even TikTok. Um, I'm, I have to admit that I'm a little bit skeptical uh, about what's going on with TikTok. I do not want the president of the United States with the ability to just wake up any morning and decide what apps Americans get to use or don't get to use. I don't know uh, if what I've read is, is accurate on you know, possible security breaches and so on. But I have to say, um, I'm... 
I'm more than willing to kind of hear the rest of that. And I think if there are serious security breaches, that again, my mindset is we have a serious, serious enemy. And I don't just mean the United States of America. I mean, we as human beings on this planet have a very serious enemy in China. And so I'm much more open to doing something uh, like blocking TikTok or requiring it to, to somehow control data it's getting in ways that we can be confident of. Uh, and I'd, I'd be even much more for people saying, no, we're just not using TikTok. Don't need to pass any law. Don't need to do anything. Washington, nobody in Washington even has to wake up and go to the Capitol. Uh, we, as American consumers, we're not using TikTok. Um, and I think we have to continually bring our force in whatever small way, but huge way, if it's collective, um, to this issue and to other issues, to every issue, but especially this issue, uh, which is, is all over the world and yet in many ways tough for us to get at. Uh, we can find ways. Thank you for tuning in to This Week of Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. Paul writes commentary at thisiscommonsense.org five days a week. You can find him on Facebook at Common Sense with Paul Jacob. You can find this podcast hosted on SoundCloud and available via podcatchers such as Apple's, Google's, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. See you next weekend.